Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about speaker versus consultant. Yes. Gauge match. Yes, yes. <laughs> where, where are you on the spectrum? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this comes out of a conversation we had with David A. Fields where he sort of offhandedly mentioned that he is a consultant who speaks. And it kind of reminds me of uh, an earlier conversation we had about should you write a book, I think was the episode title where we talked about the different sort of strategic reasons why you might want to write a book. And there are different reasons and, and you would approach it different ways depending on what your desired outcome was. And it's kind of the same thing with speaking. You know, it's like, why are you doing it? So we wanted to drill into that a little bit today and talk about some of the different uh, mindsets and skill sets and differences between those two types. Not, not that they're mutually exclusive, but people probably skew one way or the other. Yeah, and I, I think the why is is the place to start. And it's I, I don't think there's a bad reason to include speaking as part of your, your business, as part of your practice. But I think that if you have clarity about why you're doing it, it makes a lot of decisions easier, right? Like when you get these invitations that you really should say no to, because they're they're not going to get you where you want to go, but you find yourself not being able to say no, or you create multiple versions of a speech that may work fine for delivering motivation, but may not work at all for building your client base. Yeah, and the skills that you that you use to deliver a really successful talk to a big room full of people are not necessarily the same skills that you would use, you know, in a one-on-one consultation in a meeting room. Oh, exactly. I know where I fall on the spectrum. When I was doing consulting, I was definitely a consultant who spoke. The expertise that I gained from doing client work is what I would base my talks on. So it was very it it was very much consulting first and then the talk came out of the consulting work. It wasn't like I had I mean, I had some sort of big ideas and prognostications about the future, and we were talking about mobile tech when it was still new. So it was a little bit futuristic, but I didn't spend my entire week thinking about like what's going to be the future of communications or anything like that. It was like I'd spent my entire week solving problems for clients, and then as I would be doing that, I would notice things, and I'd be like, ooh, that would be fun to talk about or that'd be fun to explore. I would put together a talk. And I would submit it to different conferences or I would network my way into conferences. And I knew full well that uh, even though I was getting paid to, to speak, it wasn't a lot of money. It was nothing to write home about. Same with my early book royalties, nothing to write home about. But getting up on stage in front of a group of people and connecting with them and making them think about these things and presenting yourself as, you know, just demonstrating that you have expertise in this space is going to very quickly builds trust with people. And I it was surely between the book and speaking, surely the number one way that I landed virtually all of my consulting clients, not all, but almost all of my consulting clients came through either the book or speaking engagements. So it was a way to get visibility quickly. It was totally, mm -hmm. totally about awareness, trust building. It was a marketing move. Mm hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, and I've always been a consultant who speaks too. I mean, I've never just personally never been interested in doing just speaking. It's just not what I'm interested in. I like the 
the give and take of an audience because it tests you in really good ways, I think. It, it tests your knowledge. It tests your ability to think on your feet. It tests your ability to communicate and to teach. And especially if the room is big, it's, it's hard to engage that many people and keep their attention and still make your point and build towards what you want. So I love the challenge of that. But again, for me, I love the immediacy of consulting. It's the wrestling with a thorny problem and seeing the transformation. So for me, it's great if an audience can take what I'm teaching them and apply it to something. And it's a, it's a feel good on both sides, but it's very fleeting. Maybe that just means I'm not good enough at it, but it feels <laughs> it feels more fleeting versus when I'm doing work with a client and it's more in depth, it it's longer lasting, it's meatier for for me. I don't know if that's true for everybody, but that's how I feel about it. I can see both sides of it. For me, the the downside of speaking is all the stuff that leads up to the onstage part. When I was doing speaking a lot, I was super comfortable, but I was kind of like one of those. I had slides and I would kind of like, I wasn't like practicing like my blocking like you would for if you were an actor in a play or on Broadway, you know, it wasn't like, wasn't like taking it to the Michael Port level where you're like stalking the stage and you stand over here when you're making this kind of point and like thinking through like your hand motions and all that stuff. I was much more of the sort of casual, like a go up and be smart and try and get through the material with enough time left over to do lots of Q&A. That was like my favorite part. I wouldn't say I was winging it. I mean, I practiced the talks, but I didn't do like the same talk a hundred times. Almost very rarely would I repeat a talk. I repeat a lot of slides. I had a huge slide deck and I would reorganize it for and be picky and choosy about each particular situation and sort of deliver a custom presentation depending on the audience. I'm not sure I feel the same way about which one is meatier? I think it depends on the topic now that I'm thinking it through because the for B2C versus B2B type topics, I could get into the sort of like just be a speaker, inspirational speaker. I don't think that's, um, it's it's tempting to be like, oh, that's just woo woo, like rah rah. BS oh no, and, no, yeah. yeah. No, I, I don't. I, yeah. don't, I definitely I don't, don't feel, feel like that. that. Yeah, no, I don't feel that. It's it's more of a personal thing because I've got, you know, I've worked with clients who do a lot more speaking, and they're still subject matter experts. But some are, that's what I was thinking as you were talking, it's, it's when we're subject matter experts, we're really focusing on imparting this knowledge to people and helping them to incorporate it in some way in their work or their life, depending on your audience. I think when you get to non-subject matter experts, when you talk about inspiration, for example, or an inspirational speech, I think of the story speeches, you know, this terrible thing happened to me, but I overcame it. This is how I did. This is how I look at it. And, and everybody feels good. You know, that's not saying that's, or I don't think that that's not meaty. It's just different from a subject matter perspective. Not everybody can do the transformational inspirational story. But subject matter experts can do a lot with what they have with the right audience. A quote that I almost positive comes from Seth Godin uh, that I really like is that it's whether it's subject matter expert or it's overcoming adversity, inspirational type of thing, the 
point of doing it in person on stage is emotional transfer, which I find super interesting. If you're not there to transfer the emotions around whatever your excitement is around this subject or or you're trying to change the audience in some way and using all of the sort of communication available in an in-person situation you know the the sound the hand gestures the facial expressions the the pregnant pauses and all of the stuff that that disappears on situ, you know, like an audio format or even in video because people watch everything on fast speed or whatever, they're not paying attention. But when you're sitting in a room, you're, you're, ca- you're kind of a captive audience at that point. And the person on stage has like everything at their disposal from, you know, kind of like the history of the human species, you know, like the communication, they're sort of in charge of driving that experience. Not that it's not two way, but certainly they're, they have the most control compared to any other medium. If you're there to make a change in the audience, and I think you probably shouldn't be there if that's not what you're trying to do, like what's the point if you're not trying to make a change? So knowing that the benefit of getting everybody in a room together is that you can transfer emotion more efficiently than any other way. I think that's really, really interesting. And I guess I'm kind of like riffing into a, riffing into a how to be a good speaker, which isn't exactly the topic here. But I do think there's an angle where you're like, well, maybe this shouldn't be a speech. You know what I mean? Like a particular piece of content that would be delivered in a way that's straight up information transfer, you know, yeah, write a blog post. (laughs) Yeah, right. right. You know, or just send the slides. Yeah. But if you're coming into a talk situation, I think it's like how, you know, what, what am I trying, what change am I trying to make here? What action do I want these people to take at the end? Or what, what thought are they, am I trying to get across? And then using everything you can from an emotional standpoint to facilitate that change in the audience. That is a skill. If you were a speaker first and did some consulting to flesh out your income streams, then you're probably going to spend a lot more time every week getting better at that emotional transfer and and getting the audience over the hump of whatever change it is you're trying to present to them. I've always believed that there is a set of consulting skills. And I'm sure speakers will agree there's a set of speaking skills. And I think that emotional transfer happens in consulting as well. And I can almost hear the developers in the audience say, no, 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 it's not about emotion. It's about the code. But it is when you're doing certain kinds of work. Like if you're working with a corporate team trying to make something happen, you know, it could be a website, but it could also be that you want to do some team building or you want to create a new compensation plan for the organization. Whenever you do those kinds of things, you almost have to have some kind of an emotional transfer. It's just different. You're not going to be standing there blocking your moves, right, at the conference table, but there might be, you might think about where you sit. You might think about how you include the nine people around the table in the conversation and how to make sure everyone's viewpoint is heard or that the leader isn't overshadowing other influencers in the group. But and then you kind of take that and and explode that, right, a hundred times over, and then you're talking speaking skills. Yeah, like there's definitely some overlap. And I'm like looking over at my bookshelf and there's like Steal the Show by Michael Port, who is a 
for at least for a long time was a consultant, but now is focusing much more on speaking and uh, flawless consulting. Peter Block, which is a book I wish I had read 20 years ago about really he's got sort of three different ways that consultants approach consulting engagements. And, you know, there's a particular one that I think is probably his favorite. But the point the point is, like, there are two books that are big books full of really good information. There is some overlap because you're talking, you know, it's about humans communicating. But if you are going to be good at either one of them, I mean, like 80% or 90% of the material is goes really, really deep down two different rabbit holes. So to get back to the sort of beginning, we we're talking about, you know, if you're going to focus on getting really good at one of them, you strategically, you're going to want to turn down certain things, say, say no to certain things and say yes to certain things. And that will depend on you know, am I trying to become an amazing speaker? And that is my living. Like I tell people when I meet them, I'm a professional speaker. Like that's what I do for a living versus when I meet people and I say, oh, I'm a consultant, then you're going to engage in different behaviors on a daily basis. You're going to have to like, if you want to get better at one of them, it would be not that you couldn't get better at both, but it would take a really long time. And knowing where you fall it's a strategic decision. It's it's going to decide what things you say no to, and it's going to be saying no to a lot of things, and then you're left over with the things you actually have time to do well. Well, it's where you fall and where you want to fall in the scheme of things. Because I've worked with a lot of people who are well over to the consultant side of the equation, but want to be doing a lot more speaking. And sometimes they'll say, okay, you know, 2019 is the year that I want to really ratchet up my speaking. And so they'll make a concerted effort. It's kind of, you know, one of their top one or two, three goals for the year. And they make that effort. It's helpful to understand where you are right now, right? Because that'll tell you what you need to do. And most importantly, which things to say yes to and which things to run screaming from. (laughs) (laughs) So do you have off the top of your head, do you have some like maybe uh, stories uh, around that kind of a what should you run screaming from or you know what should you go toward in different situations like maybe for you you personally well I don't do as much speaking as I used to I, I was on what I would call the speaking circuit for HR audiences for a few years and that was awesome I basically said yes to anything they would ask me to do and I did that because I was young I was working for a big consulting firm. It's interesting. Speaking really didn't help me get clients, I don't think. It added to my reputation inside the firm and got me to partner a lot faster. But what I loved about speaking was because my consulting was all in one city. It was all in Chicago. And the speaking was all outside of Chicago. So they wouldn't pay me. My firm was very happy to let me go do it as long as I continued to bill the appropriate amount of hours over the course of a year and sell the appropriate amount of business. But so I would fly into these uh, different cities, all U.S.-based at that point, and I would meet, by virtue of, of the speaking, I would meet the head of these various 
human resource functions in large companies. And those were our target markets. So I, I wouldn't say that I did it intentionally so that I would know those people when I went on my out on my own because I didn't have that vision at that time. But I knew that in the long run, it would help me to make those connections and know those people. So again, early on, it just did amazing things for my career. Now, most of the people in this audience are probably not on staff at a big consulting firm already getting paid and getting to run off and do that. So I realized looking back now, that was it was a very lucky and, and interesting time. Today, the way that I look at it is this, is a speech isn't just an hour. It is the travel to and from. It is the preparation time. And I am I'm just rigorous about preparation. It's like, I do not want somebody to go, oh my God, she was terrible. I want it to be good for that audience. So there's all that front end work to make sure that you understand the audience and create the materials. So it's usually, I would say, about a three-day, at least a three-day investment for an audience that I understand. And by that, it has to be people who are owning businesses or they're consulting or they're writers, you know, they're, they're creating something. Then we're good. If it's another audience, number one, I don't know if they would ask me, but if they did, I would say no. If that audience is, is not chock full of people who can also hire me or buy my stuff, it's not a good exchange of, of money and time. I, I can make a lot more money doing something else. And I, I don't get something out of the pure joy of speaking to just do it for the pure joy. Oh, I didn't even think of that. I mean, <laughs> I know from talking to people that some people do completely get off on being up on stage and doing that whole thing. And I mean, I'm, I have a music background, oh, so yeah. obviously I know it's a tons rush. of people like that. Yeah, It's a rush. I get if it. If I never got on stage again, that would be completely fine with me. And more importantly, if I never got on a plane again, that would be even better. <laughs> Which is, to me, that's the big bummer of, of speaking is I, I am so over, I'm not scared to fly. I'm just so over it. Like where else in your life do you have to like stand in line and you can't do what you want to do? Where else do you have to get permission to go to the bathroom? Nowhere. <laughs> Nowhere. So it's the it's the worst. And it's funny because this year I'm actually talking to someone about doing a conference in Florida. This isn't the very first time I would be doing a uh, more of a, a pricing type of talk. I've done several. No, several, I've probably done a half a dozen of them uh, off the tail end of my mobile sort of careers where people were still calling me. It's like, hey, we want you to speak at this thing or whatever. Because I was like you, I was on the speaking circuit for a while. After a while, people just contact you. Hey, we want you. You were great at that last thing. People loved it. Can you come do this one? And I would say like, well, I can, but I'm kind of focusing on something a little bit different for the same audience, but you might not want it. So it's about outwardly billing and ditching it and doing something different to deliver a better experience to the clients and increase your profits. And so they're like, oh, no, no, that sounds interesting. We hardly ever do business talks. They'll probably love it. So I did a few of those, but they were kind of accidental in a way. It felt accidental, not intentional. Oh, but I and like how you turned it, though. I do like that. Because what you really did in a way was you said no, but you gave them an alternative. I mean, mm, I think that's Yeah. No, I think it was really smart to do it that way. Was it worth it? I don't know. It's hard to say. I actually... I can think of one situation where it was absolutely worth it. I'm still getting getting you know people buying my book from, or buying stuff from me and saying, "Oh yeah, I, I saw you first in in uh, Virginia at that conference in 2015." It's like, wow, okay, cool. It's more of a long game than 
when I was doing big ticket consulting because people would like, you'd walk off stage and people would line up and be like, here's my card. We need to talk on Monday. It feels much more B2C, even though I do, you know, everybody who, who hires me is doing it for their business, but it feels very much more like a B2C type of feel. Anyway, so I've got this one coming up that's specifically like, it's about payments. Jonathan, what do you mean by about payments? Can you? It's kind of about payments in a transactional way. And I said to the guy, I'm like, am I understanding this right? Like, it sounds like a, you know, and it's a person I know who, who he's a conference promoter. He basically goes around and puts conferences together and he's seen me before and we've talked before and he's like, you'll be perfect. And I'm like, you understand that I'm going to talk about ditching hourly billing, right? And he's like, yeah, 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 it's perfect. I was like, okay, honestly, I don't know exactly what kind of people are going to be there, which is, I should, I should know the answer to that. But I'm I'm looking at it more of an as an experiment than anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird. I should probably say no to it, but I already said yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can dissect it on another show, another episode. Yeah, it, it's like okay, I'm going to put together a for real talk, really in this space instead of one that was just like customized to kind of fit into an a uh, conference that really was about something else. I don't know. We'll see what happens, but uh, it's really funny to think like man, really, I'm going to like iron my shirt and like get on a plane and (laughs) is it going to be worth it? Like, why am I doing it? So that's kind of the point of this episode. Look, why am I doing it? Is it just because it feels like it worked for me before and I stopped doing it because we had kids and now the kids are a little bit older and I can start doing it again? You know, is it almost like a a return to the rut? Or, you know, mm. not a, you know, rut's the wrong word, but... Right. The routine. You had a, yeah, you, a routine. You had a routine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think it's going to be fundamentally different, which is which is probably the thing subconsciously that's attracting me to it. I do think it's going to be fundamentally different because my business is fundamentally different. And I feel like, you know, it's been five years since I was seriously on the circuit. And think of all the technology changes that have happened since then. And the, the audience sentiment of like the way, like YouTube... You, I started a YouTube channel like a couple of months ago and it already has more like subscribers than than this podcast or any of my other podcasts have listeners. It's insane. <laughs> and I feel like the whole media landscape has changed significantly in the last five years. But just social media in a speech. People buried in their phones are probably tweeting about what you're saying. Well, hopefully. I almost just want to be like, what's a conference like now? I haven't been to one in five years. I, I feel like it'll be the same, but but how will it splash out into the surrounding media landscape, recording the talks and then posting them and how are they going to chop them up and what are the reactions going to be? And it reminds me potentially of like a book show. So like <laughs> my stepfather owned a bookstore and once Amazon came around, it was like they used to do these book shows before Amazon, you did book shows. That's where you sold your really expensive books. And once Amazon happened, when you'd go to a book show, it had this weird, like, what are we all doing here feel to it? Like, everyone was like, something's, something's wrong here. Like, there's something's missing. The spark is gone or like something. I don't, I don't know what it is. I have a feeling it's going to be like that. I could be wrong. I'm, I'm, I kind of hope I'm wrong. You might be surprised. I think the immediacy is so much stronger. I think it's more fascinating now. Maybe. Personally. Yeah. Yeah, it it could be totally true. So and that's why I'm I'm curious. Like it might be exactly like you said. Like people are craving that kind of an experience because they're so buried with like 
you know, YouTube videos and Twitter comments and blah, 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 blah. And they just want to actually like engage with a human being in person, but. A live emotional experience. It's kind of back to Seth's point. I think we want that now more than ever. And when I say we, I mean, those of us who are not in big organizations, who are not surrounded by people all day, it's a way to to find your tribe. And, and it might not be clients, it might be, it might be, you know, potential alliance partners, it might be people who are kind of doing what you do, but you're not really competitive. And all of a sudden, you have a, a work buddy to talk to about these things. It might be that you, you know, you're just pulling in information. But what I like about all of this is that you really spent some time on your why before you said yes. So you agonized about this if not before, certainly after. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, it's a little bit more after. Like I said, yes. I'm like, wait a minute. Well, that's a great, great angle for this episode is like I said, yes, because I had said, oh, I'm going to do more speaking in 2019. But then after I said yes, I was like, well, wait a minute. Why? Like now that it was like real, I was like, well, is speaking even a thing anymore? Like, is that going to for, for me? Is that even a thing for me anymore? I guess if nothing else, I'm sort of post facto rationalization. But for me now, the interest is all about the experiment and dipping my toe back into the water and seeing what's different about the water. Uh, I'm very curious to see. So, and I would be pretty excited if it was. I, I'm hope I'm hopeful like that it's it's even more intense than they used to be because of the kind of people drowning in that sort of fast food version of human relationships and social media. But now, like to me, I see it as more of an experiment, an opportunity to put together a talk. I can do a webinar. I can repurpose it a million ways afterwards. Um, so it certainly won't be a waste of time. It's it's really just, uh, it feels very experimental, which is weird because I've spoken at probably 100 or 200 conferences and now I'm like, this feels like an experiment. <laughs> Yeah, but but I think that's that's where our audience needs to go. It's it's why do you want to speak? Or if you have already been speaking, how do you see it? I mean, you could be really mercenary about it and say, how does this fit into my my business and revenue model? What position does it play? I've had clients where they said speaking is where clients find me. So I don't care if I get paid or not. It's that that I'm in front of those people either as a keynote or as a workshop leader, and then they're going to hire me. And they can draw direct lines between their client engagements and those speeches. I have another client who's got a big idea, and he's a very successful uh, consultant. And so at this stage in his career, he could just sit back and just like print money. But he's like, no, I want to do more speaking. And he's doing some speeches for free as part of his learning, his giving back to the various communities he's involved in. But he's got a plan on where he wants to take that speaking. So, yeah, he'll do it for free now. He'll probably still do some for free if it's the right audience because he can help them. But it's it's going to be about the big idea. It's not even about selling copies of the book that he wrote to support this. It really isn't. I mean, he doesn't even look at his sales figures, which I find fascinating. I've never had a client who doesn't look at their book sales. He just, he doesn't look at it, doesn't care, doesn't motivate him. It's all about the idea and seeing, literally seeing the transformation in the eyes of the audience as he's, as he's doing it. It's, it's. Oh yeah. There's nothing. That's true. That gasp is like the best. It's a high. I mean, there's, yeah. and, and if you don't like that, you probably shouldn't be speaking. 
that is the joy is seeing that transformation. And I see it a lot, you know, one-to-one with my clients, but it's different when you see it in a room with a bunch of people and, and it just, it like dawns on them or they start talking about it. Like the second you're done, it's like, because you've sparked some idea in them that they want to talk about. It's pretty awesome. My favorite thing in the world is turning the light bulb on for people. And if, if you somehow manage to do it for an entire room of, you know, like hundreds of people in one shot, that is like a, <laughs> adrenaline rush. It, it doesn't happen yeah. that often. It doesn't happen yeah. that often to me. But when it does happen, it's like, whoa, that was great. Yeah. Well, and I think where a lot of people start is they're experts in something. And so they start to get asked or they volunteer to teach their fellow experts or people in corporations who manage that function, but maybe are not as expert in some aspects. So they're starting, they start to teach those people. So they start it from a a subject matter expert perspective. And a lot of times those are the people who maybe aren't spending a lot of time. They worry about the content, like incessantly. They'll tweak that PowerPoint a million times. They may not really worry so much about their presentation, their their where they stand. I, I remember when I first started doing this, I was like so proud of myself because I, I I talk with my hands and I'm thinking, oh, this is gonna be people are gonna like this. It's gonna be energetic. One of my mentors pulled me aside and said, okay, when you're on the stage like that, you have to monitor your hand movements. And this is what you did. And he pointed out to me how I was rocking on my feet and I was walking a little too much from side to side. You know, things like that you don't think about. But if you're going to really invest in building your speaking, those are the skills. And you can hire yourself a coach for that. Those are the skills that you want to start to develop. And you want to ask the right people for feedback about your performance because you want it to be constructive, but you also want to still be able to keep working on it because you're excited to not because you feel like you were the worst speaker ever. (laughs) Right. Well, you just, you just use the word performance, which I think is key. So the, there's sort of two sides to it. It's like your content and then the performance, the delivery of the content, but it is a performance. It's like a kind of performance art. You could do an amazing delivery of, of mediocre content. Those are the kinds of speakers that turn people like me off where it's like, wow, that was super energetic. And that person was really amazing, but it was cotton candy and there was just no meat to it. And then there's that sort of other side where somebody obsesses perhaps too much about the content itself. And then that's when you get a real dry professorial kind of bullet point deck of like details, 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 and finding a, um, balance if you're going to give a speech you need to find a balance there but probably the balance swings even farther once you've decided like no i'm going to be a speaker that, like, that's going to be my job on my business card it's going to say speaker leadership speaker or inspirational speaker or something like that and you are going to go hard on those sorts of skills the performance aspect of the skills and presumably you'll have good content that hopefully that's a given but It's really the focus is on like, okay, inspiring these people. That means I need to be good at the performance. And I've seen a million speakers and most of them are are more on the content side, at least the the conferences I've been at. They're more on the content side and less on the performance side. Uh, But, you know, that's from years of like developer conferences and web design conferences and stuff. So it's a bunch of content experts who work by themselves in their basement. And then they come out and sort of share like, oh, CSS animations, isn't this cool? And uh, a lot less of a performance aspect to it. 
I want to go back to what you said about about good content. And I'm going to make the argument that good content, when you're approaching this from a subject matter expert viewpoint, it's not just that it's technically right. Making it good content means it's interesting. So to me, that means you need a story or two. You need a new way to explain something that no one's ever thought of before. It's the same kind of thing you put into your consulting or book writing. It has to go into speaking. It's just that it's public, it's emotional, and you get a soundbite, right? You don't get 300 pages of a book to explain your point. You, you get a series of soundbites. When someone tells me, you know, like, oh, could you help me put together, I'm going to submit a talk to this conference. Can you help me, like, sort of put it together, write the abstract? So sure. And the first thing I, I ask is, like, usually we'll know who the audience is by that point because it's a particular kind of con gaming conference. Okay. So, all right. What do you want them to do? Like, what do you want to happen? What is the thing you're trying to get across here? Are you trying to change their mind about something? Are you trying to get them to sign up to your mailing list? Are you trying to get them to buy your book? Are you trying to get them to uh, donate to charity? Like, what's the point? <laughs> like, what's, what is your goal? What do you want the audience to do at the end? Whether it's change their mind or open their wallet. And okay, once we know that, now you've got an objective and you can throw away all the stuff that doesn't matter toward achieving that objective. Because I don't know who said it, but it's like, you don't need to teach the audience everything you know. You need to teach them only what they need to know. It can be hard to kind of boil out all the things that uh, you see as really important nuances, but that don't actually contribute to the, the goal at hand in this particular speech. So it, it's easy to go on tangents. I'm like, I'm like, that's my main problem with speaking. I have to like get myself to stay away from tangents and focus on the specific reason why I'm there and wh why I'm there to help. Like, wh what is the thing that I'm trying to do? And just filter out all of that like extraneous detail. It might not be wrong. It's probably all correct detail and it might even be important in lots of situations. But perhaps not in this particular situation, you need to learn how to communicate it in a way that is going to inspire action on the part of the audience. So to me, that's like a critical piece of delivering a speech, whether you're totally on the content side, why do we care? Why are we listening to this? Or you're all on the performance side and like, why does this matter? Like this is entertaining, but is this going to change my life? I think that goes across all of them. I, like no matter where you are in the spectrum, I think that's pretty important for a speech to, to know what you're trying to do. Like, why is everyone here? It's almost like the agenda of a meeting, you know, like what's the point? What are we doing here? Well, that's why one of the things that I like to do with, with clients is to work on a, an inventory of their stories, because you mentioned that you've got a, a deck. I mean, you've got a probably a gazillion slides in it at this point. But the point is that you have something to go to and you say, oh, well, because this is for this audience, let's use this. And we want this transformation. So let's use this piece. And then you, you might create something custom sort of around that. It's kind of the same thing. If you're a subject matter expert, start keeping track of your stories or a finding that you've, something, an observation that you've made that when you're in consulting meetings, people's eyes light up when you make a comparison of a couple of things, or you talk in, met, in a metaphor that people really get. Those are your content that if you're writing, you're doing blogs and articles and things like that. But all of a sudden, a speech is a way to really play with some of that. 
but you have to be a very fine editor to only use what's going to move your audience in the direction that you've decided you want to take them. But until you have a better idea of all of these things that are unique to you and your professional point of view and your delivery style, it's it's hard to think about this. I think the more notes you have, the more ideas you have, the more observations about things you've done that have moved the needle for your clients, those are the things that will make it easier for you to be a good speaker. That is great advice. That is really, we've talked about the inventory before, as you said, it's useful in general, but man, it really, when you call it out as like a a source for effective speeches, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, I'm sitting here wishing like, oh, I wish I had that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just listen to this podcast and you'll pull out a bunch of your stories. (laughs) I know. Like, I know if I sat down with a, you know, piece of paper, I could, I could crank out a half dozen. I can, I mean, thinking of like a half dozen right now, like think stories I tell all the time. I feel like they could be polished up, but that would be sort of the, the performance end of the spectrum, the speaker end of the spectrum. Like how could I polish up this story and make it into something that's even more, more tight, almost like a, almost like a comedian would do and like really polish up the, you know, down to the word, like what's the, that's what you have to do to get really get good at speaking, I think. I mean, some people are pretty natural and they're, they've got great stories and they're naturally focused, but it's easy to get off focus, especially when you're in a big group and they're giving you love. All of a sudden, your stories get a little longer. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you throw in a fourth one instead of the three that you decided. So it, it's there's a lot of discipline involved. But I'm thinking of one client in particular who has a million stories. And he's a great storyteller. And the hardest thing for him in putting his core speech together was to pick which stories. We went through a process of deciding which ones made the cut. And it doesn't mean you have to use these three same ones all the time. But for this initial cut, for this initial audience, these are your three best stories. Like I said, he's a great storyteller. He just needed to get really focused on which things he was going to tell so that he could move the audience towards his big idea. Mm. Nice. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. We should probably do an episode on storytelling. That would be a good idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Don't you love a good storyteller, though? I mean, it's like you could just sit and listen to them forever. We're going to probably need a guest for that one. Yeah, we need need a guest because I'm not not the storyteller. Exactly. I'm reading this fabulous book right now, and it's it's uh, Julia Child's story of kind of before she published her first book and came onto American television. And it is beautifully told. And she, she did it with a co-writer at the tail end of her life, but it is beautiful. It just really struck me. There's the power of a good story is it's timeless. Yep. Cool. All right. So let's put a bookmark in that. We can wrap up this episode. Is there anything else we need to cover, do you think? I think I'm good. Cool. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.